0: Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Sylvia Ng. Sylvia is the CEO of ReturnBear, a platform that provides e-commerce retailers with an end-to-end solution for product returns. Product returns are the ugly underbelly of e-commerce shopping. For every Amazon or Shopify delivery that ends with a happy customer, there are a substantial amount of products that are being returned, either because they don't fit or they don't look as good in real life or they were broken or simply due to buyer remorse. Getting all of those products back to a retailer or a manufacturer's warehouse to be sorted, resold, or simply trashed is a huge business. With stints at eBay, Google, and Shopify, Sylvia's nearly two decades of industry experience have her leading return bear on a mission to make product returns better for brands, their customers, and the planet. Welcome, Sylvia, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you?
1: Thanks for having me, Andrew. I am in Toronto today and I'm doing great. Happy to be
0: here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Now, does Return Bear have an office or do you work from home or is it a hybrid setup?
1: It's a hybrid setup. The team gets together in Toronto once a week downtown, those of us who are here, but that's only half the team. The rest of us are spread out.
0: Okay. Well, certainly fits in with the modern office as we know it. Now, let's jump right into your company, Return Bear, which is all about making the product return process more efficient and more environmentally sound. Sylvia, if I may set the stage. Back in the day, there wasn't even such a thing as returns. You buy it, it's yours. No refunds. Then came the stage where you could return it, but it had to be unused, back in its original packaging with all the tags intact. Then somehow, we as consumers made this huge leap to the point where you can return anything you want for any reason regardless of whether the packaging has been opened or even if the product has already been used. The most famous example of course has been the amount of big screen televisions that get returned to Costco for a full refund literally the day after all those Super Bowl viewing parties. Clearly retailers have felt that reducing or even removing the risk of a bad purchase was valued by customers and thus they offer these loose return policies as a way to stay competitive. And clearly, the ease of returning purchases is great for consumers, who now are incentivized to make even more purchases because they have even less risk associated with a regretful purchase. Especially since COVID jumpstarted e-commerce, the number of returns has grown exponentially in lockstep with the growth of shopping online. So Sylvia, as I finally let you talk, I ask you, what the heck happens to all those return products?
1: Well, unfortunately, a lot of it does go to landfill. So in North America, there are $700 billion worth of goods being returned in a single year. Just, just think about that. $700 billion. In Canada here alone, there's $60 billion. I mean, in comparison, it almost sounds small as 60 but it's in billions here that we're talking about. And unfortunately, it's very hard for the brands to figure out how to take those returns back into inventory, even if they're not damaged. Because the unit economics of doing that are very tough to solve, right? Uh, and going back to your, you know, that was a great description of the evolution of, of returns. Going back to the root of the problem is that businesses and consumers have evolved over time. We as consumers have certain expectations of what a brand will do for us, All right? Uh, there's two big trends going on right now. One is bracket buying, which is we as consumers like to buy three or four things, in different sizes. I mean, same thing, but in three or four different sizes to try it on and to see whatever fits we keep and whichever ones don't, we send back, right? Uh, so bracket buying has contributed to that growth in return rate that you're talking about. Uh, and the second trend is try before you buy. We all want the idea of trying, the physical trying on aspect to still be there. And we all like to think that it's an omnichannel world now. You know, what is online and offline all mixes together in one great experience. And that means being able to try things before you actually commit to buying it. Uh, and again, that feeds into more returns uh, because, you know, the chances of you loving what you try on isn't you know always going to be there. Or the whole point is that you're not going to love everything that you try on.
0: Well, I think that's great. You know, uh, it's great that you have two names for these, these concepts because I am absolutely guilty of both of them. Try before you buy and bracket buying. Now, shipping products to customers in the first place is relatively straightforward. Apparently, returning products is much more complicated. Why is the returns process so different from the shipping slash fulfillment process?
1: Well, if you think about it, logically speaking, there's two big things that play into to here. The brands have their products mainly sitting in centralized warehouses. And they operate those warehouses on very set protocols and, and in the industry, call them standard operating procedures, right? So they have their staff trained, they have robotics in their warehouses, and it's a, it's a machine to ship these things out. It's a single way of doing things on repeat. It's a well-oiled machine. By the time you ship all those things back, your products are in a million various consumer households spread out across the country. The idea of you controlling that process now to get these things back, is it's practically way more impossible, right? It's a different consumers, they've had different um, things happening to the packages on their way out. Like, to your point, some of them could be damaged. and they're all in disparate locations now. Some of them are in rural settings, some of them are in urban settings. And how do you get all that stuff back? It's not a single process. you know some trucks just don't reach out to the far reaches of you know Yukon or even like out east in Newfoundland you know it's hard to get things back from there. Once it's gone out, so yeah, it, it's the I was characterizing it as one. It's easier because the warehouses are centralized, so you're going from essentially one to many to get forge uh, fulfillment orders out. But now the reverse is many back into one, and so controlling the many, the process on the many, is just that much harder than it is controlling a single process in one location.
0: Well, clearly it's a logistical uh, nightmare that's been solved on the fulfillment side, not on the return side. I wonder how much does the logistics of returns factor into how major sites like Amazon or Shopify think about e-commerce? Because I'm going to guess they are really focused on shipping slash fulfillment and perhaps less focused on handling the reverse, which is the returns.
1: That has historically always been the case. Like if you think about it, Andrew, these businesses, all these e-commerce businesses, their sales is the revenue, right? That's a hundred percent of their business. The returns, though, at most even as much as returns have increased, at most it's around twenty-five to thirty percent of their orders. So returns are a at most a fraction of their business problem. Uh, so in terms of priority, it's always very hard to prioritize that, that little bit. Uh, but what happens is it ends up adding up, especially if you look at a, a geographic uh, perspective, like you in Canada here. We, as consumers, buy a lot of things cross-border, right? We buy from U.S. brands, we buy from um, Asian brands, and things are shipped overseas to here. When you think about a brand's essentially profit and loss statement, if you're based in the U.S., at most 10% of your sales are going to Canada. Then at most, I'm saying 30% of those sales are being returned. From a prioritization perspective, it's very hard for that brand to prioritize this single return problem from this single market. But then it all adds up. Because then you so add up all of the returns happening across Canada itself, it becomes again that $6 billion problem, but no one's prioritized it.
0: Well, clearly there's a problem. If only we could find a solution. And this brings us to Return Bear. What is Return Bear?
1: So Return Bear is basically an e commerce returns platform that allows all of what we just talked about to be simpler. We are allowing brands to get their products back faster and cheaper in order to make sure that they can get things back into inventory so they don't have to
0: resort to throwing things out. And when you say brands, are your customers, are you talking about the retailers or the product manufacturers or both? The retailers, e-commerce brands mainly. And do you focus only on returns generated from e-commerce sites, or do you also handle returns from bricks and mortar retailers?
1: We mainly handle e-commerce sites, uh, but we do also work with brick and mortar retailers, uh, the Bay being a classical uh, example of that, because obviously uh, a lot of the retailers now are omni-channel, so it's not just about one or the other. Uh, So we work with uh, both, but the majority of the problem that we're seeing is more so with the e-commerce brands that have little logistics presence and also little brick and mortar presence, because it's harder when you don't have a physical presence to get those
0: goods back. Now, as noted, returns from online shopping are at an all-time high. Are these rising return rates a failure by retailers to really understand their customers? Or is it more of these consumers trends that you kind of identified before the bracket buying and the try before you buy?
1: Yeah, really, it is the consumer expectations. Uh, and actually, on the flip side, the consumer's hold a big key in the solution, which right now I don't think people realize. We as consumers have these expectations of being able to do these returns. But for some reason, we don't have, at least from my perspective, a very high expectation that the the solution should be very easy. You know, we've been, as a base of consumers, slapping return labels and printing those return labels and finding packaging and repackaging things. And really, really, we don't need to do that anymore. With Return Bearer Solution, we have a network of drop-off locations across Canada that allows you to do returns without needing to package anything, without needing to print a shipping label, and you get the refund on the spot without having to wait. So we as consumers, I think to one extent, have created the, the, the aspect or expect the experience to be there, but we don't ask for it enough still in terms of how
0: easy it could be.
1: Return Bearer and there's other solutions out there really that make it really easy consumers don't realize that.
0: Well, I think this certainly ties into an issue of waste, which I know you want to share some thoughts on. One of the stated raison d'etre of return bear is to provide direct environmental savings. What does that mean?
1: Well, if you think about what I was talking about in terms of the cross-border returns, there's actually a lot of, quote unquote, waste as an inefficiencies in the system that we really shouldn't be stomaching. And we as consumers should be asking the brands and the retailers to stop doing. So if you think about it, if I am a retailer based abroad, right, call it Europe, and I ship my goods over to Canada or or the US from Europe, when those returns happen, a lot of the times it actually has to sh- be shipped back to Europe for someone to assess the quality of before they can determine what to do with it, whether it should be recycled or resold or or Actually, it's in primary resale condition and should be actually just put back into inventory to sell again. So, if you think about the, these things, it's being sent from Europe out to North America, being sent back when there's a return, and then if it's a, in good enough quality again, they put it in back into inventory to sell, and then it gets shipped back again out to North America. Now I'm like a, on a basis alone—that's just three trips across the ocean, right there. Uh, Whereas really, if we had the logistics set up, and it's not to say this doesn't exist, we just need to connect the dots and have our systems talk to each other. We can keep the goods here locally in Canada or in the U.S. And when the next resale uh, or the next sale happens, we just need to ship it out from here instead of having to go back and forth across borders. So that is direct environmental impact and waste elimination that we are doing by just keeping the goods locally, and by connecting all the e-commerce systems and the the logistics systems needed to make that happen.
0: Well, clearly there's a lot of waste, there's a lot of inefficiency. I don't know if you can take us kind of behind the curtain, and I don't know if if you can comment on this because I'm going to give you a bricks and mortar example, but we've all been to Costco. There's this huge line out the door of people making returns. They Mm -hmm. return a product, no, no packaging, no nothing. The person doesn't ask a question, full refund or a store credit. They toss it over their shoulder into this bin. Where does that product go? Does it ever, first of all, does it? Is the burden placed on the manufacturer, do they end up having to eat the cost? And does that product just get trashed traditionally, in your experience, or does it somehow end up back in the uh, selling process to go to another consumer?
1: Yeah, I unfortunately won't say I'm a spokesperson, like I'm not a spokesperson for cost <laughs> Uh so I don't know if I have too much to comment on that process. <laughs> But I will say it is a challenge, right? Like, Like, clearly, Costco and other brands do want to do right by their customers, and they will say, "No questions asked, bring it back here, I will deal with it." But when you think about it, like the unit economics, like the amount of margin that they made off of that product to begin with, doesn't allow them to necessarily inspect and treat those return goods with the the amount of time and quality needed to make sure that we don't make the wrong decisions. Right. Like who's really at, like looking at that item to say, OK, this is actually good enough. I will resell it versus, well, you know, it's damaged enough that it really should be taken apart and recycled versus, oh, actually, this could be donated somewhere. Or, or in the end, nothing can be done with this and it really does have to go to charge. Like that decisioning requires a lot uh, right now of time and effort. Uh, and the, the unfortunate part is that that time and effort might not be worthwhile. Given the unit co- economics of that actual item. Uh, so, a lot of what we need to do and what we're trying to do at Return Bear, what I'm describing is trying to lower the cost required to do that determination and to get those items back in order for the brands to be able to make that determination on a larger class of items so that we can, again,
0: divert from landfill. And your platform at Return Bear, is this a solution for Canadian customers or is this something that can be implemented in the US or even outside of North America?
1: Yeah, we're being used right now in the U.S. and uh, in Canada. But uh, because we have been born here, our network is bigger and stronger uh, here in Canada. In Canada, with our partners uh, that we're running, um, we already have over a thousand locations accessible across the country for the immediate refunds, package-free, label-free, immediate refunds. And then we also have two hubs, one in Vancouver and one in Toronto to do that assessment of goods that I'm talking about and then also forward-fulfilling to local customers.
0: Now, Sylvia, there's lots of companies out there working in this product returns efficiency space, but are you even competing with each other directly or or is the returns process so complex that perhaps there's room for multiple solutions?
1: Definitely the latter. Uh, it's interesting, I get this, asked this a lot because when you look at the number of return solution providers out there, there are, uh, on uh, first glance, A lot of them. And so it's very easy to say, oh, it's, you know, you're all doing the same thing. This is, this must be solved. It's not true. Uh, The underlying technology and systems that the retailers use to handle e-commerce is so fragmented that it's very hard for any one solution to be able to solve it all. From my perspective, it's actually great that there are so many players in the space because we cannot solve the overall problem without significant investment and a healthy ecosystem. Uh, working together to solve all those problems. Like there's, cool. you know, folks that they are doing e commerce smokes that are doing upcycling. There's, you know, there's very, you know, we call it returns. But like I said, it's a $600 billion market here just in North America. The idea that it's going to be a silver bullet to solve that all just doesn't exist. <laughs>
0: well, it sounds like there's lots of stories still be, to be written and lots of options for return bearers. So let's just understand the company got started two years ago. How many employees do you have today? Around 20. And in terms of the way you're backed, how is Return Bear financed?
1: Well, we are invested in um, by the Arterial Teachers Pension Plans through their venture studio called Coru, and also Cadillac Fairview, which uh, you may know as the really nice malls that run across Canada. You know, Center, Pacific Center in Vancouver, Rideau Center in uh, Ottawa, etc.
0: Certainly I do. Now, Sylvia, with any startup, you also have to think about the end point. Is there an exit strategy or a liquidity event that you are hoping to lead return bear towards? It's
1: interesting that you asked me that because I feel like uh, at least in my founder and CEO seat, first and foremost, I really do want to make a dent on that environmental problem. The exit path for me is going to be a byproduct of us solving that problem, just like how revenue will be a byproduct of us making a dent of that problem. Uh, So all that said, like what that looks like, I feel like it can can go many avenues. It's hard for me to kind of say, oh, this is exactly what it will be. I can definitely say that, you know, with the players and the ecosystem that we just characterize as being very fragmented, I feel like there's many, many options
0: of where this could go. And when you say it's so fragmented, this industry of product returns efficiency, do you think there's going to be consolidation? Will somebody acquire you? Will you acquire somebody else? Do you see people getting together?
1: Quite possibly. I would still say that we're a little bit early for that, uh, at least in, uh, more so in Canada than in the States. Right now, Retumber is the only provider of this type of network here in Canada. Uh, so I feel like there is, uh, I think, at least a few years for the um, the ecosystem
0: to mature still uh, for us to get to consolidation. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Sylvia Ng, Please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. we got other great entrepreneurs including Mark Cohan, David Cinnamon, Wes Hall, Zev Shalev, Harley Redlick, and Zane Kaplansky. How they did it, directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about your background, which is very interesting. 50 years at the same company in a gold watch at retirement is clearly not for Sylvia Ng. You've had many career stops and experiences. Before we talk about a few of them, let's start with your education. Talk about your engineering degree in systems design at the University of Waterloo, and then talk about where you went for your master's.
1: Systems design. I haven't brought that up or had someone bring that up with me in a while. I applied and got into that program mainly because it, was, and, and presumably still is, the engineering degree to get when you don't know what you want to do. <laughs> uh, internally, we, in the program, always said it uh, was great for people who are the jack of all trades and presumably master of none, uh, because it attracted a lot of people who are, who like the generalist side of engineering. You know, we like to dabble in a little bit of everything, which then lend itself to actually many avenues of opportunity. Uh, So I do have friends from that program that are doing a wide, wide range of things from working, you know, on the Canada arm and robotics to being on the trading floor at banks to being teachers or even like pastry chefs come out of that program. So uh, I personally loved it. It did allow me to dabble in a lot of different fields in that program. And then obviously, uh, University of Waterloo offers a great co-op program, which allowed me to start my career in tech. Uh, and bring me to where I am. Uh, in terms of the second uh, degree that I got, I did do a master's in predictive analytics, and that was related to um, my love of analyzing data, which I fell into after graduating from the systems design degree. But can I tell you about ma- that master's? It was
0: Well, what I want to hear there is if you went to Northwestern University, I'm going to assume you were on campus in Chicago, and what was the experience like going to school in the U.S.?
1: Actually, no, I never stepped foot on that campus once before that. This fast. is
0: very new age, Sylvia.
1: <laughs> it was an entire virtual master's degree. I had many, many opportunities to go down to Chicago. Um, but what had happened was I decided to do that degree while on maternity leave. So I had a newborn with me at home and the idea of traveling down there just didn't fit. And what I was able to do was essentially study during his naps. So it was two-hour chunks of doing
0: master's work. That's great, and this was this is all pre-COVID, so you were ahead of the curve in terms of uh, learning virtually.
1: Mm-hmm. It took some adjustment, uh, but it worked well uh, because I—I I mean, I love my kids, but I couldn't sit at home all day without some mental stimulation from adults. I found that very tough. <laughs> yeah. So having the master's degree kept me occupied.
0: Excellent. Well, let's cover some of your selected work experiences with tech companies that we have all heard of. Let's start with your eBay experience.
1: So eBay, I ended up joining, I guess, a couple of years out, out of school precisely because I started realizing that I loved doing data and analytics and wanted to work at a larger tech firm where there is a huge base of data and also strategize, uh, strategies around leveraging data. Uh, so I joined their internet marketing team based in Toronto and later on ended up getting rolled up under uh, their U.S. business. And it was a very, I think for me, a, a career um, opening move because eBay at the time, and I think in, in some ways still very much is at the forefront of big data and in using that for internet marketing and, and being at the forefront of digital um, experiences for, for buyers and sellers. Uh, so I learned a bunch of uh, e-commerce from there, and that allowed me then obviously to to do the things later on that you see on my resume.
0: And after eBay, there's another small company. Some of us have heard of. You worked at Google. What was the experience like there?
1: It was another. Oh well, yeah, very similar to eBay. Both of these these companies did shape uh, later on my my career and my thinking and, and culture uh, or how I would what kind of. Companies I would uh, want to be in in terms of culture. Google, I think, is as you might imagine it, it to be. When I was there, it wasn't quite the early days of Google, um, but still early enough that it felt very much, uh, you know, typical Silicon Valley tech. You know, it was the lots of food around, perks everywhere. You know, get your laundry picked up at your at your desk and it gets delivered back to you. Free massages. You know. Sit down, full full on sit down lunch, breakfast, lunch and dinner, yeah. at with Michelin star restaurant like chefs, which was intense because you have all of that. It means that you're with your team all the time and you're practically working most days, most hours, most most days. Uh, but at the same time, also very rewarding because we were, I think, tackling um, very very big goals and allowed me to, uh, you know to get exposed to a lot of um, new and exciting projects at once.
0: And did you become a really good foosball player?
1: Foosball player? No, weirdly. I still, but you know, I think that's just because everyone else was so good
0: around me. I would love to have a table like that all the way around. Now, your most recent corporate experience was with Shopify. Would you say they really are on the leading edge of e commerce?
1: I would say they're definitely on the leading edge of enabling. Everybody to do e commerce. You know, they really did democratize and are continuing to democratize e commerce. Uh, It is, you know, the small bean businesses are the backbone of our economy, and Shopify is enabling a lot of that. What I really loved about working there was being able to help a lot of the environmental founders, right? So you're seeing this, I might return there because I want to make that environmental impact. There's a good part of why I joined Shopify was also to make that environmental impact. The founders and business owners out there who have new products that are environmental, you think bamboo toothbrushes or folks that are using recycled wooden chopsticks to make home goods, all of those products now are being sold on Shopify stores. Uh, So in building that product, I was able to help those founders to build their businesses and push
0: more environmental products out to the world. And that, for me, was very, very fulfilling. And then how did you make this decision? And how did you end up moving over to a startup to return Bear as the CEO?
1: Well, I've been wanting a while to really leverage my tech skills in a, a very specific, like, direct line into environmental issues. And so what I told you at Shopify, it was fulfilling, but in the end, it was a an indirect thing. You know, I'm helping people to build e-commerce stores, and they, through selling their environmental products, that was the, the environmental impact. Uh, and there at Shopify, I started realizing that the returns problem is gigantic. And and so I love to do return there mainly because I realized I can use my tech skills to directly
0: reduce the inefficiencies there. And when you leave a corporate job for a startup, this is exciting, this is scary, or both? Both. Definitely both.
1: (laughs) You know uh, how they say that anxiety and creativity are wrapped up together in the brain? It's exactly like that. I get excited and anxious at
0: the same time. That's a great way to put it. I want to know what you're working on now at Return Bear and what is coming up next?
1: Uh, Also, we have, like I shared with you, already expanded our product and offering with great coverage in Canada. So we are looking at expanding internationally now and also into next year. Uh, so we are spinning up processing hubs in the U.S. Uh, we've started already processing um, in the U.S. with a large uh, Amazon seller down there and are uh, continuing to our U.S. presence next year and likely looking at opening up our, our drop-off network then as well. On the kind of platform side of things, we are continuing to take in all the data. Again, my data background <laughs> on returns. And we're trying to start building out the the brain for the, all of that decision-making with the data that we are collecting to continue to optimize and reduce the inefficiencies in the overall shipping of products uh, around for returns.
0: I feel like before we close, I should give you the podium for a minute to talk about who is the onus on to kind of help alleviate the issues that come with all these returns. Is it the brands or is it me? As the consumer that is shopping on e-commerce sites,
1: that is a great, great question. You are living my day to day. Look, this problem exists because there is currently no ownership. If you look at these brands and look at like the their leadership, typically that ownership sits nowhere. If the brand is really, really good, you know, like Walmart designated a VP of returns not too far uh, back, but you think about like that's a giant, giant company, and they only recently started assigning people the title of dealing with returns. Usually the responsibility split between you know, the, either the COO or the you know the head of e-commerce, so somewhere between ops and e- e-commerce, and then maybe customer services in there as well. But it's also a financial impact. So it's actually between all of these things. Uh, and it's very hard, obviously, for us to make the, the decisions that we need to do if there isn't a single point of account. On the consumer side, like I was saying, I actually think the consumers need to be owning more of that, that experience. Like a lot of the changes that I think we're seeing now, especially in the, on the environmental front and, you know, even in Toronto, us getting rid of the single-use plastics is because the consumers were voicing their concerns and actually, you know, like advocating for those changes to happen. And we as consumers right now are very complacent about advocating for better returns. So I think it's actually on, we need both to happen. We need the consumers to really start speaking out about better returns and pushing brands and telling them, hey, Not only do I expect you to be doing this, I'm not going to buy from you if you don't, and I will buy from you more if you do. Like Consumers need to be way more vocal about that. And hopefully at that point, it will wake up the brands to solve the accountability internally in order to make things happen.
0: Well, I think that's a great way to close off. It's clearly a a problem that doesn't get solved unless everyone's contributing. And again, Sylvia, I'm blown away by these numbers you shared. A $60 billion market in Canada $700 $700 billion worldwide. You got your work cut out for you. North America alone. And- oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, you got your work cut out for you, but clearly a huge business opportunity, which is very exciting. So I want to thank you for your time, and I want to wish you continued success going forward with Return Bear.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's
0: been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Sylvia Ing, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast.